What have you been doing on your week off then? Uh, not a lot really. Uh, <laughs> just recovering yeah, from like the weeks that have been building up. Uh, I went to House Tides on Wednesday. And you're at Koshon tonight? At Koshon tonight and then Squash on Wednesday. Oh, amazing. So, yeah, it's just really good. What are you going to do? You're going to stay in York or? Uh, we're just going to get the train tonight and then we've got a taxi back, so that's not too bad. Uh, oh, nice. And then we're Squash, we're just going for lunch, so that's not too bad. Oh, that's bad. not too Have you been to Squash before? We've not been, no. I've been to Koshon, yeah. Really? Keep meaning to go. Like, we've been to the wine bar a couple of times. So. Yeah. We went for Tommy's birthday like last year and that was good. Oh, yeah, I remember you said. And uh, so, yeah, it should be good. I'm looking forward to it. Really, so. I would say definitely the stuff that he's doing at the minute Josh like he mm. could be up there like with yeah, the star pushing, yeah. or something well, like that matter, well yeah <laughs> it, it was interesting to talk to him actually yeah. about that because again when he's so good friends with Tommy mm. and they're very different different people yeah. they're different, um, completely different yeah. styles and obviously being in Black Swan on Wednesday I said, yeah. to, I said to Tommy like the minute you walk in yeah. you completely understand the ethos oh, yeah, you know, exactly. like, yeah, yeah. it rings true from the building yeah, yeah, yeah. do you know what I mean yeah, like, it, to me it almost couldn't be anything else no it couldn't I, I couldn't imagine it being anything else either like, I think that's why people go there because like it is what it is it's where it is we use the stuff from where it is it's not going to be a molecular gastronomy <laughs> restaurant like the fat duck or something like that it's yeah. just like it's about nature. It's about using the stuff that we can grow, and that's what we do. Is it a bit of a challenge for you then? Because obviously you're having to be a chef, and then also learn about how to forage the ingredients. Yeah, and... I think that the, the biggest challenge I had was when I first went there, and they were using stuff that I just never heard of. So it was like, oh, this tastes like this. This is what we use, and I was like, I don't actually know what it is. So like until I actually tried it, like you've got, you can't get your brain around how it works with something else. So like an example was like woodruff. So we did like woodruff with like mackerel. Like that was like one of the first, I think that was like one of the first things that we did when I first went there. And I was like, I have no idea what woodruff is. So how do I know that like how can I get my head around it working with the fish if I don't know what it is? So I think Because even Tommy was saying to us just say, you know, he's learning, he's yeah, pretty much yeah. self taught. Yeah. Yeah. Not had any real formal training. So yeah. it seems to me like all the kitchen kind of learns together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it, but that's why I think it works so well because because we're using things or we're using techniques that like pretty much none of us have ever done. We're all like experimenting. So like it doesn't matter if you're the head chef or you're a commie chef. You can still give some feedback on that ingredient or you can say what you think about the ingredient or how it's going to work with something else. And we'll all be like, oh yeah, actually, yeah, that, why, why don't we try that? You know, it might not necessarily work, but any idea from anybody is like so important, mm. especially when you're using stuff that like the like all of us really don't like know a lot of the stuff and I think like like now we're sort of all getting used to like like spruce tips and stuff like that. Like we all we all know the characteristics. Woodruff we know and like lemon verbena and all that sort of thing. Like yeah, everybody knows what it is now, and so we can like be like oh I don't know trout's coming in next month and like oh we've got this this and in the garden and we now know that yeah that'll actually work with that. Oh yeah that could be interesting with that. Whereas before it might be like what's verbena or, or, or what, what is this and you're like mm, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> have we got any lemons or not and it's like no it's like okay so how far in advance then are you planning you know your shifts and your so for like dishes and stuff yeah uh, so well like recently now we're building a development kitchen which is going to be a massive help so we've got a guy that's going to be a development chef and basically we'll have meetings with like um, Tommy's dad and the rest of the gardeners and they'll be like right in six weeks time we're going to have this this and this and we'll be like right so we need to come up with a dish that's going to work with that and everybody's more than welcome to put ideas forth. And then we just come up with things like sort of there. And a lot of the time it happens by literally just sat having a beer. And you're, you're sat having a beer and you're just like, 
thinking about things that we did maybe last year and then you're like oh yeah we did that last year why don't we try it with this this year and do this this and this and then all of a sudden a dish that we maybe did last year has the same sort of background but is completely different and has evolved two or three steps and that's like really good I, I like enjoy that more than anything like the way that we can just all sit down and there could be there could be ten of us sat around and everybody will like chip in and like an idea that we'll like Tommy will say I've been thinking about doing this this and this and then nine or ten people will then chip in with a little idea and next thing you know this dish that was there is like all the way over here and it's still got the same background note, but like ten minds are better than one sort of thing and like Tommy appreciates that as well he he's not like well this is my idea this is what we're running with he's like he always sends us emails he always like pulls us into like group messages we all sit down and he's like right this is what I'm thinking. What do you guys think? And he listens to the feedback, which is so important. Hello, it's Paul from the Past Podcast. I just wanted to say a massive thank you for downloading this. There's more to come, so please subscribe. This podcast is brought to you in line with Great British Chefs. It's a fantastic website that I'm a member of. It brings you recipes, tips, and there's loads of features. In fact, if you think, two of my guests this year have been on the Great British Menu. They've got a fantastic feature going along with that this year, and you can get involved and take quizzes. One of the things I didn't know is they have a fantastic recipe guide. You can search from ingredients that you've got in stock. Or sometimes what I do is just go down to the market, buy one ingredient, and then you can look online and see what goes with it. And now, it's time for this week's podcast. On with the show. So, my guest today is Sean Rest. He's got a very impressive CV <laughs> for quite a young man. So, you obviously, as we've been talking about so far, you're chef at the Black Swan yeah, at Portstead. Yeah. It's a restaurant that's becoming more and more well-known, not just for the dishy head chef, Tommy Banks, yeah, but yeah, for the produce yeah. and the quality of stuff that you're cooking. I was fortunate enough, actually, today is... Friday, I was fortunate enough to eat two days ago at the Black Swan, so we're going to talk about my meal. You weren't yeah, on. You, no, said, uh, you said that would incre- uh, increase the uh, it quality. Been better, <laughs> it would have been better. <laughs> um, and, but you've also spent time at the Fat Duck, which uh, we're yeah, going to talk about, yeah. and MIMO, which Mimo, was yeah. kind of in the kind of British collective knowledge when it yeah. was on MasterChef. Yeah. So you've got some like pretty impressive places under your belt, Yeah, I've been to a few good places, yeah. So I just wanted to welcome you. Thank you, mate. Thank you for joining me. Oh, nice to meet you. So can you tell me a little bit then about your role at the Black Swan? Uh, so I recently um, got sous chef. I suppose my role is to obviously help the head chef, help Tommy, uh, help Ryan, the other sous chef, just to run the kitchen, I suppose, and also help with ideas and dishes and implement them and just make sure that everything's running smoothly, making sure everybody else is happy and that they're learning as well and that their contribution's heard as well and... Uh, as they say, it's like one team, one dream. So we've all got to work together. It doesn't matter about positions in my eyes. It's all about everybody progressing, everybody pushing for the same thing. So I think that's most important. What's sort of important for you then, you know, if you think about your career? Yeah. What are you trying to get out of it at the minute? Honestly, just to learn as much as I can. I know for some people it's about being in a certain position and or being the head chef, being the sous chef. For me, it's just about learning. I want to learn as much as I can. That's why I go off to these places and give up all my holiday and get told off by my girlfriend. Um, <laughs> just because I want to learn as much as I can. And then when I decide to eventually move on from the Black Swan or be a head chef somewhere or run my own restaurant, I'll have such a, hopefully have such a good um, like a background knowledge that I'll be able to make a successful restaurant yeah. that people are interested in and come and eat into. And Do you have that in the back of your mind now? Do you have that yeah. vision in the yeah, back of your I mind? Yeah, I think so, yeah. 
I'm 25 now, so I'm still young, but also I've got to start looking at like the next six years. You know, that's I've got like a plan in my head, and that's for like the next six years. By the time I'm sort of coming up 30, 31, hopefully I'll be in like a, I'll either be in a senior management role, like a head chef of somewhere, with a view to getting our own place. And that's what I want to do. I want to have my own place. And... So with with the three places that you've been to, there are, there are some similarities and obviously we've just been talking about some of the things that you're able to overlap yeah but they also are quite different yeah so what is your favorite sort of food to cook or what's your style i suppose the food that they did at mimo relates to me the most i suppose with like what we're doing now um so i like the ideas of like it being very natural um using like the best produce like the best fish seafood meat whatever it is and but i like the idea of like making oils making things into vinegars that sort of thing that takes a dish from like being one thing to completely different you know like fermenting ingredients and things like that it just takes an ingredient to a whole new level and that's what I like doing um when I was 21 so four years ago I went to the fat duck and at my time in that time I wanted to see what like not so much molecular gastronomy but I'd never used I never really used water baths or anything like this and I wanted to see like what that was like and I wanted to see like the techniques they were doing but I feel like I've gone like a whole different spectrum now so like my interest was almost in like, oh, can I verify this or I do something with this? And then more now as I've got older and progressed. For me, I just want things to be natural, um, less played about with, but like the use of oils and vinegars and things like that, which are so natural because they're coming from something like, they might be from the ground or something. And that's what I like more now rather than things that are like overly played about with. Do you feel like you've got quite a good home then in the, in the Black Swan? Yeah, I think, sort of I think Black Swan suits me perfectly. I keep finding like old pictures of me of this child where I was like had this little toy kitchen and there's my sister there and she's like looking at me and I'm seem to be like shouting at her like as if I might <laughs> run in the past at like five years old. And there's like other pictures where like we're working in my mum's mum and dad's garden and we're like digging up potatoes and things like that. And it's never something that I ever really like remember until I saw the photos and I was like, hang on a minute, like now I'm working in a restaurant that's like growing things and like I seem to have had this in my childhood, and I'm like, I do not remember this whatsoever. But it must have played some sort of uh, some sort of thing into my future. So. Was there like a turning point then, or a eureka moment that you thought, right, yeah, I am going to be a chef? Yeah, so it was a strange one, really, because I sort of did work experience at the first job that I had through school, and um, from sort of like the age of like 15 to sort of 17, so like a two-year period, I was like just helping out on weekends whilst I was still at school. And then they offered me, like, an MVQ at, like, 16. And I like, told my mum and dad, and they were like, no way. Like, what do you mean? I was like, they're like no way. You, you know, you need to go do A-levels. You need to... You want to go to university? You want to be... Because originally, I wanted to be in the police. I was like... Right, OK. And they're like, why, why, why the sudden change of heart? And I was like, oh, actually, yeah, maybe, maybe, like, maybe I don't want to be a chef. Maybe that's not what I want to do. So I went and did A-levels. And um, it was, like, halfway through doing A-levels. Like, one day, I was just, like, in service, and Jonathan was, like, doing something with me, and... It was almost just like, I, it was like something in the back of my head, I was like, this is what I want to do. And I still had like another year left of A-levels and I said to my mum and dad, I was like, look, I want to be a chef. And they were, again, they were like, oh, I thought you wanted to go to university. And I was like, well, I, I don't, like, man. Yeah, I want to be a chef. And I think for them, it was almost a thing like, they were worried that like, not that there's anything wrong with this, by the way, but I think they were thinking like, oh, I just want to go be a pub chef, like do carveries and stuff. And like, I think when, once I started speaking to them about like, what my career goals were and stuff they sort of like realise actually yeah, yeah like he's not just going to be an everyday pub chef that's like 
smashing out 60 carveries on a Sunday and then <laughs> just getting pissed up at well like, actually he's got a real career that he wants to do and they've supported me ever since and it helped me with like going to Mimo and stuff and supporting me through that so like that was amazing so I just want to make him proud that's the main thing really and one of the things that interests me when you're making that decision does it dawn on you at that time how many hours you're about to start working yeah it does but also I, I used to get told off at school for this because when I was like doing it I was still working 30 hours a week and I remember them pulling me into a meeting and they were like you know you, how many hours a week are you doing like at this place and I was like well like probably 30 and like well what's your breakdown and I was like well I work Saturday Sundays from nine nine till 10 o'clock at night I do the same on a Sunday and then when I finish here I go and do six hours and they're like you're doing too many. I was always what I want to do. So I'd already had like a little invitation into the hours and it's, it doesn't bother me. <laughs> I know people say, you know, you hear chefs going on and on and on about the hours. They are long. Yeah. And you think after 25 years, some of these chefs would just be used to it. Like, yeah. just, just get, like, just, we under, I understand that there's long hours, but it's part and parcel of it. Just, what gives you the most pleasure that what gives you the ability to just keep slogging away at it? Yes. Like, they're the most important people, aren't they? Like, some people talk about like Michelin and AA and the good food guys and all this thing. It's, at the end of the day, it's about guests. When a guest comes in, especially with us because we've got an open kitchen at the front, when you see a guest sit... Bit, yeah, it's way. great. It's really cool. But when you see a guest sit down and eat something that you've been preparing for maybe the whole day and you see that <laughs> smile on their face, you're just like, yes. Yeah. Like, they get it. They're happy. They pay the money. They want to speak to you. And that's the most important thing, like, is the guest. And it's, it's so important. To, like, going out for a meal is so important. Whether you go to a pub with your family or, you know, you go to a Michelin-style place with your girlfriend or even if you go on your own to a three-star in Norway or something like that, because people did it. As long as that person walks away happy and they have memories, like, that's the most important thing. Do you find yourself wanting to please people, you know, outside of the kitchen? Definitely, yeah. <laughs> yeah definitely, like, like Christmas dinner and stuff. Like, uh, this is like the first Christmas I've had off since I was like 15. And um, I just said to my mum and dad, I'll, I'll, cook, I'll cook Christmas dinner, you two, just because it was only us three, because my sister was away at her boyfriend's, yeah. who actually happens to be a chef. At the oh, box, really? So. <laughs> <laughs> so that causes a bit of a rivalry. Um, so no, so I like, um, I cook Christmas dinner and then... Like, my mum and dad had a great time, we had a great time, you know, you get drunk, and then my girlfriend came down from her parents, and we just, like, drank the night, and uh, we had a really good time, and then, like, the next day, Ryan, um, who's also a sous chef at the Black Swan, goes out with my sister, and he came up with his turkey. <laughs> God, this is a bit of an affair, yeah, then, oh, isn't yeah, it? No, yeah, you try and explain this to the guys at work, especially when you get new guys, and you're like, yeah, actually, this guy's pretty much my brother. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he brought his, like, uh, Christmas dinner stuff up, and it was like... Rivalry. I was just looking at him, I was like, what have you done that for? What have you done that for? You know mine's <laughs> going to be better, so. <laughs> this is freestyle, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been at Fat Dark yeah, and Wyman, yeah. right? He's worked at, like, uh, he's worked at loads of great places as well. He's worked at, like, Northcote and all oh, these other places. Hell. Like, you can imagine the intensity when he walks in, like, right, okay, let's, let's, uh, and I think my mum was like, oh, let's, do, I'll tell you what, right, we'll do a blindfold thing and uh, you can see what <laughs> oh, we, we'll no. do. And I was just like, I'm going upstairs. Yeah, you're just creasing decision. in the corner. Yeah, <laughs> um, I'm moving to Norway unless you were saying man's better. <laughs> Can you give maybe me and the listeners a bit of a sense of, you know, what a service is like? Yeah. So, like, for us at the Black Swan, it's, it's a different service to anywhere else because we have three kitchens. So you have the front one, which is, like, where, like, snacks and larder comes from. And then in the back we have sauce. And then downstairs we have pastry. So it can be quite hectic because, like, if you're cooking sauce, you don't know what's gone from the front. So we, we rely on, like, a conversation 
where there's a guy on like a board and he says, B-Tube's gone on two. And then in your head, you're like, yeah, okay. Because we don't get checks in the back either. So we work off like a little board system, which is like quite unique. Um, so we can't look at the thing that like, look, right, that's gone, that's gone. It's like, uh, right, Will, who's our head chef, he's like, right, Will, um, has this gone and this gone? And he'll like tell us everything that's going on. So you got you rely on communication really well, which is good because everybody has to listen, which then in turn means that there can be no like, there can be no shouting, there can be no like aggression. Not that there's never been aggression there anyway, but some kitchens do. But like we don't have any of that because we have to rely on each other so heavily to um, get the communication so we know exactly what's going on. So like our services are really good. They're so smooth. Sometimes they get a little bit hectic, but we have that many of us on. It's just like, all right, um, so Alex, you finished snacks. Like, can you come in here and just like put the scallops in the oven for me? Or Dan, can you come in and um, build up the salads and stuff like that? So it works so well because everybody just helps each other. And also it's a, it's a strange service as well because you know when you like see kitchens and they're like getting slammed and you see like people are really, really struggling. We don't have that because the first, the first few courses come from the front which means that the pressure's then off the people in the back kitchen, which means the people in the back kitchen can come out to the front and help. And then when we start getting signed in the back, that means that most of the courses from the front have already gone. So they can come back and help us. So it's like one it's like big puzzle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It works really works well for us. The thing is, is I, so I've been a little bit in kitchens. I've yeah. done, so it's like a pot wash. And yeah. Did like stars, you know, however you say it. So yeah. Just being a commie. And you get to the end and you are just buzzing, you know. Yeah. You can't, you can't sleep. Yeah, exactly. That's why we always right. look so tired. Exactly. So how do you find that balance? You've got to know when to switch off, that's the thing. I find uh, drinking a lot helps afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't come officially endorsed. No, I'm not <laughs> Nor will I promote any alcohol before anybody else. Yeah, no brands. But if you want to send him some, yeah, just address it to samples, Sean at the Black Swan. Yeah, Timothy Taylor's landlord would be absolutely <laughs> ideal. I don't know if they listen. Yeah, well, if they do, I'm listening. What, what are the key differences then between the three kitchens that you've worked in? So when, like the first job I took was with a guy called Jonathan Harrison um, at a place called the Sandpiper Inn, which was like where I live in a place called Laban, which is like right in the Yorkshire Dales. And he won the Roos Scholarship, which is a big like cooking right, competition, yeah, okay. which you've maybe heard of. I'm not yeah, sure. yeah. And um, so he was like the first person to really teach me like, how to cook and, and things like this. So he was very like classical, bordering on like modern sort of things as well. So he was like completely different. And then I went to Yorbridge House, which was very modern. And we used a lot of modern techniques. He worked for Kenny Atkinson at uh, Rockcliffe. He was his right, head okay. chef there. So we got like a lot of influences from like Kenny and stuff like that. And obviously then he took them and he went his own way and that was completely different. And then obviously the Black Swan is just, for me, the Black Swan is just completely different to anywhere. There's a lot of rest of kitchens that obviously they are all different in their own way, but some of them follow like a French way or, or whatever. I just don't think there's there's nowhere like for me the Black Swan in the whole UK. It's just completely different. We're growing everything, you know. We go out foraging. We use ingredients that like you would probably never think of using. We spend hours upon hours a day like picking like spruce tips or wild garlic capers, elderberries, elderflowers, all this sort of thing. So for me, the Black Swan you just can't compare it to. The other places I've worked or anywhere else in the UK is just completely yeah. different for me. Anyway. People might disagree. But. I think you've kind of already answered this question, but what I was interested in, you know, you, like you say, I kind of got to know you when you were 
saying you're going out to Mimer. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what was interesting is when you were kind of saying to Tommy, right, look, I've got this opportunity yeah. or I want to seek this opportunity, you know, how was he feeling about that? And kind of what I was wondering is, you know, do they then feel like they're only going to gain because yeah. you're going to get better? Like, how uh, does that kind of come about? It was a, it was a strange conversation because I, I booked it to go in, like, last June. So I booked it like six months in advance and they were sort of saying, oh, come in October. And I was like, oh, it's a bit too soon. Can I come in January? So it gave me a long time to like yeah. save up, but also like get my head around going there. But actually when I booked it, I didn't realise, but Tommy was actually going to eat at Mimo two weeks later. So I waited for him to come back. <laughs> Hopefully him coming back going, this is like one of the best meals I've ever had. Yeah. And then broached the subject to him and was like, this is what I wanted. I want to go to Mimo for a month or five weeks, whatever it was. And I was a bit nervous because obviously like, you're asking for like five weeks off and you don't know how he's going to take it. And he just looked at me and went, fantastic. Like, he was just like, it's a great opportunity for you. Like, I couldn't be any more proud of you for wanting to do this. Like, And then basically like just sat me down and was like, here's some here's some extra holiday days. I'll help you out, you know, if you need any money towards your accommodation. But like, when you come back, you know, I want to raid you for some ideas and stuff. Like, I want you to hear about your techniques and what they're doing and, and it works in unison. Like he supported me, and then I come back and give him some ideas. I said to Tommy, and I still mean this now. I don't see myself leaving the Black Swan for three for at least three, four years anyway. And I mean that. And I love the Black Swan so much. I love everybody that's there. So going to like Mimo was just a time to learn something. Whilst I was still, it was like it's like a footballer getting loaned out to a, a club to get experience, more experience to then come back and hopefully improve the team and come up with ideas. Not that I do it single handedly, but. To go to Mimo and see this, this and this and then come back and be like, right, I've seen this, this and this. And then Tommy will go, that's a good idea. Or he'll go, mm, that doesn't work with us, which is fine also because not everything that you get from a restaurant works with the ethos that what we do. So it works, it works like hand in hand. Like he supported me and then I came back and was like, yeah, like this is what I've learned. And they can take whatever they want from it. They can take recipes that I've got. You know, like that's the most important thing. Like Will did it, he went to Noma. Went to know him for three months, he's seen loads, he's got loads of great ideas, he's come back and you know, like yeah. a lot of it's like like going onto the menu and stuff like but they're not like carbon copies either, that's what I like as well. Like, yeah. I didn't go to Mime and go, I had I had this, like this is what we should really put on the menu. It was like I seen this technique, let's see if we can do it. Yeah. Like, let's try and make it better. Like, okay, it's a three star, but like because yeah. I mentioned one of my favourite dishes from the other night was the scallop. Yeah, yeah. And you said that had come from a bit of Noma and a bit yeah, of Yeah, So like I mean like the the actual dish with like the spruce and the smoked butter and the apple and the celeriac. Well, celeriac, celeriac and apple anyway is, is classical with scallops. Like that's been done for the last thirty years. But like we like Tommy took it to a different level and did it with like spruce dips, and that gives like your acidity and stuff. So we pickle them and we make a spruce butter. So we like pack up, get loads of spruce dips into butter, and make this beautifully green butter. I'm like, remembering it yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's going to drift off. And, and then remember. there's like smoke butter in there, so you get the smokiness, and it's just like, oh, it's just like, it's such a good dish. And we did it like last year uh, in like a sense, and it was great. It was like an amazing dish. And then I, like, I went to Mimo and I saw that they were like cooking scallops in the shell. And I was like, I didn't really understand why either. Like, it was just a case like I saw them doing it. I was like, oh, well, that's cool. Why? But yeah, it's like, it's cool, but like, why are they doing it? <laughs> And then I remember we were like, again, we were just like, I think it was like me, Tommy, Will, Ryan and Nick or somebody like, we were just all sat around and we're like, talking about, because um, we had a dish on with rhubarb and scallop, which was like great as well. But like rhubarb was coming out of season, we're like, right, spruce tips are coming in, let's do the dish from last year, but we'll make it better. And I was like, I've, like, I've seen them cooking these scallops in the shell, but I don't really know why. So like, I can't say that it's any better than what we do anyway. 
Tom was like, yeah, I've like seen that. And then Will was like, yeah, like they did it at Noma as well. So we just tried them, we just cooked it in the oven. But one thing that like Tommy really loves about scallops and loads of people love about it is the caramelization. Mm-hmm. So like, we cooked it till it was literally just like sort of medium rare. Got a really hot pan, seared it, so you still got the caramelization, and we just like carve it. We tried it on some like, this is like so much better. Like, why have we been cooking scallops like in a pan or whatever for like this long? Like, let's like get them through the oven. And that would just like stem from like four or five people again, just sat around talking. And nice. That's why I love the box one because it doesn't matter what position you are. You can come in as a commie, you can come in as a stagiaire. If you want to contribute something, go for it. And uh, Tom, that's what I love about Tommy as well. He's like, you go to him and you're like, oh, I've had this idea. And you're just like, well, Give me what you want order, and I'll order it, and then just go and dry it out. Yeah, yeah right. Like, how many people do that? Not many people. Are. So, as as somebody who's obviously you know thinking about food all the time and thinking about dishes, how did you come up with your menu that you've given to me today? So basically, these uh, sort of like I suppose like dishes that like from sort of each place that I've worked, and it's a dish that like I suppose has something to do with the time and place of while whilst I was there and why it means something to me. So like the first dish is like. Probably like the first dish that like Jonathan was like, right, I'm going to show you one, then you're going to do it. And I just remember this like first night, so it's um, a salmon blini with like a veluti of like caviar and chervil and things. And um, he stood over me and um, showed me one and he was like, right, you're doing it. And I absolutely sank. And I just remember going through service and like, they were on like, they weren't, they were on like special, I think, for like the first couple of nights. So it was like a special. So like the last thing that everybody was getting told was this salmon dish. And it was just, I was just like, right, check on one more, check on one more. And I was just like, <laughs> and I was just like absolutely sinking. And I think the other time, Jonathan was like, what's up with you? What's up with you? Wake up, wake up. Come on, come on, come on. And then the next time like, you feel like absolute shit, basically, you're like, oh God, I really struggle with that. And then he comes to you after service, he's like, well done, like, you've got them out, like, perfect. And, you're like, oh. and then I think that like, sort of like gave me the confidence that basically, like, no matter what he threw at me, I could get to that level if I wanted to. I just had to have the right attitude, so... That's why it was important to me. Did you find it easy coming into the kitchen? Did you pick it up quickly or it, no. was it? So I worked with him like on weekends and I was only like 15. And um, the chef de party at the time then handed his notice and was leaving. And like Laban is like so hard to get chefs in Laban because there's just like nowhere around really. So he was like, well, do you want to cook on weekends? And I was like, yeah okay so I was like cooking on weekends and maybe helping out like the odd night through the week but I had no idea and the amount of times I cut myself on knives <laughs> cut myself on the mandolin like just generally just made a twat of myself it was just like ridiculous and but like even like cooking I've never really cooked before you know like I was like cooking maybe like on a Thursday night when my mum and dad were in but all I was doing was like banging in a pizza and hope, <laughs> hoping that like, when I took it out of the oven it was going to be alright and uh, so I had like no idea what I was doing so in a sense like I was really slow at it, but in another sense, I had to pick it up fast because I had to do it. There was no two way. There was no like, oh, we've got seventeen chefs. Like you're struggling. I'll put three people on with you, and they can babysit you. On it, it was just like you got to move your ass and get on with it. <laughs> if you're no good, off. You'll have to go find another job. And now we're in that stage, like mentioned, that you're starting to create dishes. Yeah. Apart from the experiences, apart from when you do go to Mimo, where do your ideas come from? I read a lot. Like, I read a lot, but I never, I never like to carbon copy anything. But I like to read stuff and like, oh, that technique, cool. Or, oh, that idea of the dish is cool. Like, could we do that? Can I do that? And So I read a lot and I, like, watch a lot of videos and things like that. And also, like, I've got to a point now where I'm not restricted by, like, a lack of knowledge, if that makes sense. Like, 
I've got a good grounding now in 25. It's just like, I find it easier now to be able to like see an ingredient and start thinking about what could work with it and how we should cook it. Whereas sort of like five years ago, I wouldn't have a clue. So like I'd see an ingredient and I'd be like, oh, I want to copy <laughs> that dish exactly because that's the only way I can see how to yeah. cook it. Where it's changed now. And that comes from like all the guys at work as well. Like they come up, they've got different backgrounds and experiences and they teach me new things every day. And so like that's where like ideas come from really. Just everybody reading and videos and everything. Really. You've kindly come in and met me on your week off. How much cooking will you be doing? Absolutely none. <laughs> Which will wind up my girlfriend Sam knowing. I think it was last. She makes like this lovely curry, and she makes it with, like roasted butternut squash and like Ooh, coconut milk and coriander. It's like amazing. And I think like pretty much every week she's like, "What's your appetite?" I'm like, "Oh, why don't you just like go cook that curry again?" And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> it was like it just, and she's like, "Oh yeah, like you obviously." Really, and I do really like it, but like part of it is just I can just sit on the sofa and just watch TV. And, yeah. You know, I like cooking on my days off, but like sometimes you're just so knackered. You just yeah. like, the last thing I want to do is pick up a knife. And like um, you said, it's that knowing when to switch off. It uh, is, yeah. You've got to switch off, and you've got to come away from it. You work so hard, and you work loads of hours, which is like a given. But you need to have time off as well, and you need to you need to take breaks. You need to be able to walk away and go walking, or you know, like you have to go visit your family and stuff like that. It's so important, like. You go see your fa- like your grandparents and you talk to them and you have to talk to them about cooking. Just talk to them about anything. Like it's so important. And then you go back to work and that's my only focus. Well, every time I work, my my only focus for sixteen hours a day is like, how am I doing? Like, am I, am I doing what I'm doing well without telling everybody else off for doing something wrong? And so yeah, you, you've got to you've got to be able to step back all the time. Is it um, something that you you know you might you feel like you might have to get used to when you obviously now someone like Tommy's getting a lot more notice? Yeah, you must have like journalists in there. Yeah, all you the do. Time. Everybody keeps telling me it's great practice, but <laughs> I was like at the minute I think I'm stuck in this thing where I just love cooking. So like, what I want to do is just cook, and I've seen how much hard work it is to actually deal with like you know cameras and stuff and pushing a plate forward four times because they don't like the angle that you're doing it and stuff. And, <laughs> Obviously, like people say to me all the time, like, oh, it's something that you're gonna have to get used to because you're probably gonna end up doing it. It's just like, I'll take that if it comes. Like, yeah. I don't, it's not something that I've, I don't sit there and think, oh, I really want to be famous like one day and I want to cook on TV. Well, that's a shame because like. this is the biggest podcast well, in the world. Again, so now you're at a mega I'm gonna, <laughs> Again, I'm gonna have all these beer companies ringing me up saying, like, here's your after night beer and stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for that yet as well so you're going to send that on as well yeah, yeah. I'll, get, I'll get it on the thing so do, do you have any um, sort of standout dishes from your time at the Fat Duck that you've cooked because it's yeah. somewhere that is really special to yeah, me to me like it's it's like the best place in the UK to be fair it's completely different again to anywhere else it's like it does its own thing I think the problem that I had when I went there was I was only 21. Right, and okay. I never really worked anywhere else. So when I went there, I was just like completely bamboozled by what was going on. When I went to Mimo, it was like different because I went to Mimo and like I had a good background and I was more confident in myself. So I was able to like do jobs but also take in a lot more. Whereas at the Fat Duck, I was very much like a little bit like head down, work as hard as you can. and Yeah without actually like looking up and being like, oh, what's that guy doing? And then having the confidence to go over to a guy who's been there like six years and be like, why do you do that? So I think that was like a little bit different, but like, snail porridge is great. Yeah. Like the sound of the sea again, another amazing dish. 
the Black Forest girl, hands down, like the best deserve ever. Like, it's so good. And, like, the thing was, like, because the standards are so high that every time anything like slightly goes wrong with it, even if it's, it's like, oh, Sean, do you want this? I think I had about 12 Black Forest ghettos in one <laughs> night once and it was like absolutely sinking. I was like, all right. And then they'd bollock and you're like, you're not working for us. Like, you just give me like 12 bars of chocolate. Like, <laughs> yeah, wonder what why. What to do? <laughs> I should be watching Bridget Jones' diary whilst I'm doing this. Like. Actually, you said about, we're talking about cameras. Was MasterChef being filmed when you were at my It was. It, or it was it, a had funny it already thing. been done? Or? It had already been done. And it was a funny thing, you know, because when I went to the Fat Duck, I booked it in like, say, November. And I was then going into January. And I just wanted to go, and I booked it. And two weeks before I was due to go, it was on MasterChef. And so I sat down with my parents, and I watched, like, this episode about the fact that two weeks before I go, I was absolutely shitting myself. I was like, oh, my God, like, this is, like, hardcore. And then uh, four, four or five years later, I booked to go to Mimo, and the same thing happened again. So, like, two weeks before I was supposed to go to Mimo, it was on TV. And I was like, this is so strange. But I never booked them based on the fact that MasterChef was there or anything like that. Basically, they were just places I wanted yeah, to go yeah, yeah. and stuff. So, but it's quite cool to be able to see like what's the sort of standard you're going into before yeah. you actually get there as well. But obviously, you know the standard's going to be like ridiculously high anyway. So, is there a difference in you as you know as a chef? So right now, obviously, you're at a one star level. Yeah, yeah. you're doing really, really well. What's the, what is the difference then at going to that three star? Do you know it's like hard to like say because I feel like at the Black Swan, we like this is going to sound biased because obviously I work there, but you go to some places and it's like literally a case of like. Okay, that that wasn't as good as what it should have been, but let's send it. And there are places that'll do that. And it's not that the dish is bad, but it's just not as good as it should have been. And that's what a three star is. So like if the puree is not if the puree is not good or for example like lemon thyme, we had to pick down like lemon thyme at the Mimo. And if the leaves were too big or they were too small or they weren't clean, it was like thrown back at you. like not physically thrown back at you, but it's like, <laughs> There you go, you can, you can redo this. I've told you enough times what it should be like. And I, that's like one of the things. So it's like, there's so much scrutiny on everything you do. Could be picking down chervil. It's got to be the right size. It's got to have three prongs on it or whatever. Whereas like the black swan, like it wouldn't matter so much if the chervil was slightly big. You know, it, it doesn't do anything it, for the dish. Yeah, as long as it looks natural yeah. on the plate. And... But also the black swan, like we'd never ever send anything that was only good. Like, it has to be the best it can be. And that can be anything. It could be a piece of lamb that's, like, not even our fault. It could just have, like, too much fat on it. And it's not being rendered out enough because it's just so thick. And you just not had enough time to, like, render it out properly or whatever. You just get it, like, Tommy, you just give it back. You need to cook me another piece. And that's how it should be. There should be no sort of, like, mm, it's okay, like, the fat's, like, not rendered out properly, but we'll send it. It's just, like, this guest is paying, I don't know what the menu is now, but this guest is paying a lot of money to come here. Like, it's got to be perfect. And that, again, goes to, it doesn't matter if you're a one-star, a three-star, a one-rosette, or you're just a little cafe. Like, what you send out to that guest has to be perfect, as perfect as you can make it, because at the end of the day, they're paying for it. You've got to have, everything's got to be as good as you can do it. And the reason that there's differentiating, like, restaurants, like there's one-stars and three-stars, is because three-stars have even more people that, like, are doing it to, like, a higher level. If you work in a sandwich shop, you don't have to go work at Mimo. <laughs> but, like, people, like, are very proud of the sandwich shops and they send out stuff that's absolutely amazing. And, you know, like in, um, like, uh, Helmsley, there's um, Mannions. Like, they're not a sandwich shop, don't begin wrong, but everything they do is, like, amazing. You go there and you're like, oh, she's great, and you walk away from it. And you haven't just walked away from the waterside in Bray, but you've walked from somewhere that care exactly about what they do. Yeah, and you just as much, maybe, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly, and 
you know, they're not going to like do porridge of snails, are they? But like, <laughs> they, can, they do amazing sandwiches and charcuterie and everything like that. So. One of the only questions that I'm actually asking time and time again is, and I get different answers, which is why I ask yeah. it, is if you have a checklist or if you have something in your head that says, right, once it's at this stage, then I can send it to the guest. Yeah. Or then I could, like, what's, what's your process? What are you going through in your head? So, like, a dish, like, it has to be, like, off, like... For, so, for us, it, it's about a number of things. So, like, take, take the scallop dish, for example. The scallop has to be cooked perfectly when it comes out of the oven. And then it has to be seared perfectly so that the caramelisation is completely even. You've got great deep caramelization, but you've not overcooked it. Because you've got to remember, that's already come out of the oven, so it's, it's right. already almost cooked. Yeah, yeah. So your temperature has to be perfect, because if it's not, you're either going to send it out when it doesn't have any caramelization on, or you're going to overcook it and it's going to be shit. So that's one thing. The sauce is the next thing. It needs the exact amount of apple juice, so that it can take enough butter in without splitting. The butter has to be smoky enough, so you need to have enough smoked butter, but then you have to have enough spruce butter to give the acidity and the fruitiness. And then it needs... It's really simple, though. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's easy. <laughs> and then it has the pickle spruce tips, which are then like a vinegar element. So like you'll, you'll have noticed through the day when you came to eat that there's a lot of dishes that follow like a similar pattern in the fact that there's the perfectly seasoned, they look great, but also acidity plays a real big key in what we do. So like you'll have noticed like pickled beetroots on the beetroot dish, as well as like the smoky root. So you've got like pickled against smoked. You've got the horseradish curd. It's like obviously like really creamy and rich, but like all of our dishes like follow that simple like sort of thing. So like a lot of things like even like the peas and stuff on like the little tart will be dressed in like elderflower oil or they'll be seasoned up with a little bit of vinegar. And so we've always constantly thinking about seasoning, you know. But we always think of like acidity as a seasoning as well, which is like really important because mm. a lot of restaurants don't. Yeah, you think like when you go to like a fish and chip shop, yeah, and you have vinegar and lemon on it or something like that, that's acidity, right? Yeah, and you've also got your salt on there and. Right, Peppery. so it's that balance. Yeah, like every, every dish, like, and my mum do that a lot as well. A lot of, like, acidity and... You'll see, I notice as well, there's probably, like, a few dishes that add, like, different oils and stuff on it. Mm-hmm. And we make oils into, like, emulsions, so, like... Which dish would you like? Mm, so there's, like, there's like different dishes that have, like... We make, like, an emulsion that'll come from, like, an oil-based thing. And that's cool as well, though. Like, the fermented turnip puree that you have with the lamb. You eat that on its own, you're like, Jesus Christ, yeah. that's, like, wow. But you have it with like the lamb and stuff and like the like the mint vinegar gel as well. Mm-hmm. Like it just works perfectly. Can you uh talk me through then your next dish? Yeah, so the chocolate dome and blood orange sorbet um was a dish that we did at the at Yorbridge House, which is where I moved about three years ago. It's a dish because I just love chocolate. <laughs> and any chef that says they don't love chocolate is just talking rubbish. Because <laughs> chocolate is great and M and M's are great in particular. But, <laughs> But this is great. And uh, it was a dish that like started off like as a chocolate pave and we just like kept changing it over time. So we did like a chocolate dome. We filled it with like chocolate brownie, like creme pat and stuff. And then we basically froze them. We put stuck our base on like a fouilletine base on the bottom and we just covered it in chocolate. It was just like this little dome. And literally we just like some like soil and stuff. Like, so we called it chocolate soil, which was basically just like ground almonds and like cocoa powder and it looked like, it looked like dirt, but it tasted great. And um, then we just like a little roche of um, blood orange sorbet, which is like really acidic, which again comes back to everything I talk about. It's like acidity that goes with chocolate because chocolate's so rich that you need something to cut through it. That's why orange works with it. So that was a dish that we did there. And um, but we had a lot of good dishes like there. And it was great. It was like a great time for me as well because I left Jonathan at the Sandpiper and he was great to me as well because like 
you take me to like, the Roo Scholarship Finals and I get to meet people like Sat Baines and Andrew Fairley. And I get to meet like the Roo family and stuff. And like, that was great. And then he'd like take me to like, do demonstrations and we'd like cook on like stage and stuff. And he was like amazing to me. Like, I owe everything to like Jonathan really like from my younger days because he was such a big support. And not only did I work for him, but like we we're like best friends, even though there was like, I don't know, 20 years difference in his like, you know, I saw him like a second dad almost because like he'd take me to these things and he'd like introduce me to people. When I decided that like I needed to leave to progress, it was like a really sad time for me. And um, York Yorbridge was like a place that wasn't too far from when I, where I lived anyway. And I basically heard that this like guy had come and he had been head chef for Kenny Atkinson at Rockley Hall. Basically, like, it was a two rosette hotel, like five star hotel, and basically like he was telling me that like we want to get three rosettes. And I was like, yeah, let, let's do that. Push it, yeah. yeah, let's go for it. And um, so I, I left Sandpiper, which was like I owe them so much. And uh, went to this place called, called Yorbridge House. Within a year, we won two restaurant of the years and three rosettes. Amazing. And it was just like such a good time. That's so cool. Yeah. Your next one, I'm yeah. going to do your two these two dishes together first, okay? Yeah. Because this was the one that I remember from... The beetroot. Yeah, yeah, from Wednesday it's night. Cool. And it was such an incredible dish. Yeah. It's almost like a steak. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so how, how was that made then? So basically, we um, we grew these beetroots that are called crapadine beetroots, and um, basically, like they were like an old French variety of beetroot, and I think like the literal translation is tough old toad because of the way it looks. And you try and tell the customers that when they're eating, it's like funny watching the reaction. Like, yeah, great, yeah, thank you. Uh, so we we grew like so many of these beetroots. So much so that we couldn't actually like physically use them all there and then. I think like we were trying to sell them. <laughs> so what we did was we then used an old technique called um, clamping, which is like a Victorian technique. And like traditionally, you would like store them in soil, but obviously like we live on a farm, so like, next best thing, hay bales. So I like, we literally like we're there in the tractor like with TV and stuff and like putting these hay bales at like, like thirty foot high, and we we're putting these beaches in and we we're covering them and stuff and then basically like. Every day that we need these beetroots, we just go down to this clamp, we pull as much out as we need and we prep them. But then what we do is, is that basically we cook them in beef fat. Or if you're vegetarian, we just cook them in like a really nice rapeseed that we make from like herbs and stuff. The beef fat ones, so then we cook them like really, really slowly for like literally like six hours. And when people, when I tell us people are looking like, you're talking shit, you're like, no, 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 generally like, I was here at like, we were all here at like eight o'clock this morning like cooking this beetroot. That's like, that's what we do. <laughs> that's uh, the life. Yeah, Living that's the, dream. the life, yeah. What did you do with your day? Well, I got up at eight, got some beetroots from the <laughs> clamp, and then I cooked them for six hours. Rummaged around amongst the hay. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like a really good story, actually. But uh, And then, yeah, so then basically we cook these for like six hours, and then we take them off and we smoke them with like wood chips and stuff. And then basically we all the trimming from the beetroot, we actually um, juice, and we bring it down to like pretty much like a syrup or a glaze as it is. And we season that with like brown sugar and red wine vinegar and things like that. So capsule vinegar and stuff like that. So you get like yeah, Tommy will be listening. He yeah, did, he did no, tell me like, oh, I should give you a grill in. Yeah, no, especially if they, especially if that recipe's in the book. You're <laughs> great. Yeah, what are you talking? Uh, yeah, and then basically, so we do bring all that down into a glaze, and then we basically like brush that back over the beetroot, and then we make an emulsion from like cod roe that's smoked, horseradish, like make a horseradish goat good, and linseed crackers, which are like really starchy so what we do is we like literally just pour boiling water over them and just whisk them up and let them sit and all the starch comes out and then we roll them into a cracker and cook them at like one thirty, five, two and a half hours I'm really sorry if I got that wrong um, <laughs> and then basically we just lift them off and put them on top and pickle beetroots and stuff and it's just like 
It's amazing because for me, it, like, it represents exactly where we are at the Blackstone. It's like we've grown this beetroot, we've looked after it. You can store them in hay bales for two years, and not going to do anything. They won't even rot. Right. Mice might get to them, but they're not going to rot. So basically, we take these beetroots out and then we just like cook them. It has like pickled stuff, it has like crackers from the linseed that we're going down at the farm. And that, like, that just sums up to me like where we're at. It has like smoky, it has acidity, it has like this really thick, like syrupy glaze again that's like well seasoned. Like, that for me just sums up everything that we do. Something that interests me, especially of the sort of food that you're doing there, is how do you sort of know, right, okay, that dish is finished now, we don't need to add anything more to it? It's, it's a weird one. I think you just, you see, I think you just know. Some, sometimes like dishes get so complex because people keep adding stuff to it. It's like actually what you need to do is just like take it back, take stuff off. And I think that's like a prime example of like literally just a piece of beetroot with some like because it emotion. Is, yeah, exactly. It is that, it's that like, at its heart. Yeah. It is that. And especially as, as a customer comes down on the table, you've essentially got this little sort of triangle of beetroot. Yeah. Like you say, a little bit of puree and some crackers sticking out yeah, of it. Exactly. And you go, wow. Looks more is, like a dessert. Yeah, it? this is so simple. And like I say, then you cut it and... Yeah, and, and it's like, almost like, oh like, almost looks like it's medium rare. Yeah, you're right. It's like, it's like it's got this perfectly like crust exterior that's like been obviously like slowly cooked but it's almost like caramelised it and then in the middle it's got like this perfectly like medium rare looking beetroot and people often compare it to a steak because obviously like it's been cooked in beef fat as well and I just think that's one of those dishes that like it doesn't need anything else it's just completely perfect so what what are you doing then when you're developing a dish like that are you saying or is Tommy saying right okay now we've done this it needs this to go with it or mm. this is too much what's the comment do you sit around like in a table yeah, well, like, or? literally like most of the times we literally sit down and have a beer so people are the most relaxed when they're having a beer so ideas always flow if you're complete if you if you do to do it in a kitchen for example when you're completely stressed and all you want to do is like mise en place like you're just like yeah yeah let's do that let's do that right, and then let's like, clap on mise en place. it's best to do it when you've got time and usually it's after work when we sit down and we have a beer and ideas flow but also tommy's very good because what he'll do is he's like He'll go away and he'll think of ideas, but then he'll email everybody. So everybody gets his emails like, right, this is what I'm thinking of. And then everybody contributes and then like there's little bits here, there and everywhere that gets added. And quite often, like you actually find that like our dishes evolve by actually taking something back off it rather than being like, it needs this. We tend to go the opposite way where we're like, this dish, we did it like this last year, but did it need it? Or did we just put right. it on because we thought we needed it? Uh-huh. And then it's like, actually, yeah, it doesn't need that. So then we take it off and the dish is more pure. And that happens a lot. Like the scallop dish that we did last year was like, it was great, but like, it's not as good as this year. Yeah. Makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things we had, we had this little pea yeah. tart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were talking yeah. about this. And Tommy said that actually that was the first night that it came Yeah, on. yeah, it was the first night, yeah. So what has to happen for that to come out to the guests? Do, you know, do three out of five people have well, to agree? Yeah. Or is it, if Tommy doesn't like it, it's not happening? Or First and foremost, obviously, it's Tommy's restaurant. So he's got to like it. But we always, we always like get him to come in and be like, right, this is what we've come up with. Or it might be an idea that he's come up with and he's like, I want you lot to work on it because he's doing the book or whatever. So it's, it's always something that like he'll be like... A lot of our dishes really start with like what's coming into the garden. So like now we've got peas and beans and stuff, and obviously like gerolds are great anyway. So like we get gerolds from like our veg supplier and stuff because obviously we don't have gerolds in also. But like this tart, like in particular, was always going to be a pea bean gerol tart. But Tommy went to Fabrican, and they did this like burnt cream, 
So what they do is like, you've got to have a certain amount. It has to be the right volume. It's going to sound really technical. You got to have your. You got to have Brace your, yourselves. Yeah. So you got to have like your frying pan at like a certain temperature, and you got to have a certain amount of cream, right? And then you pour it in, and you have to leave it for a certain amount of time before you can move it. And then when you move it, basically, like, the bottom will have caught slightly, but it'll like caramelize. It's not burnt. And then you have to like mix it in. And you take it out. It's not burnt. No, no, no. I repeat. No, it's not burnt. Unless, unless I do it, and then it probably. Is. But then you take it out and you have to whip it up like with a spatula and it'll basically just go completely like brown colour. But it'll be like and then it'll set and it'll almost look like like creme brulee consistency, I suppose. But the technical side of that, and it sounds really like that sounds technical already, but if if your pan is not hot enough, tricky bit yeah, is. <laughs> if your pan is not hot enough, or you have too much liquid, or your pan's so for example, if your pan's too hot, it'll burn. If your pan's not hot enough, the sort of liquid you know, like you have like water and stuff and like the cream is naturally there. It won't evaporate if your pan's not hot enough, so nothing will happen. So you've got to have your pan the exact right temperature. Jeez. You've got to have the exact right amount. So basically, the all you're left with is the fat part of the cream. Otherwise, you're going to have liquid. It's not going to do anything. Or you're going to burn it. So like, that's like a real thing. You guys are crazy, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> but like, but basically, anyway, going back to the original thing, is like Tommy went to Favacon and basically had like this like little quinella cream, some like crab. And he was like, that'll work great with that tart. So he came back and was like, that's going on yeah that's going in the tart and then I basically like a, piece, a tart that we already had like envisaged like six weeks ago was just like taken to the next level yeah and we hadn't even really put tasty. anything made like we didn't even made and it was just come from an idea yes. of yeah, yeah eating out so your last dish on your menu yeah. is from Mimo yeah so was that one of the ones that you would have been responsible for cooking when you were there yeah or? so like when I, when I worked there I was like working on the sauce section like predominantly so um, this was like a like a dish that like I prepped a lot prepped a lot of langoustines and had like hands like my grandma by the time the end of the <laughs> and um yeah for me it was just like perfect because it was the shellfish in Norway is just like unbelievable I've never seen a five like langoustines were like literally the same size as my arm and for anybody who doesn't know I am I'm six foot three so you can imagine how big my arm is and um <laughs> it was just amazing like the produce was amazing and they didn't do a lot to it but they like heightened it to like new levels so basically what they did was this langoustine dish came in two or three parts. So you took all the meat out of the claws, you took the shells, and you made a bisque. And then in this bisque, they basically um, put their claw meat into the bisque. So you had like this really like sweet like claw meat and this like really like light bisque. And then they made like some jelly from like crown dill, and like that went on top. And then basically you like I don't know if you've ever made a bisque before, but they become quite thin, and like, they're not like great. Like when they're really thin, they're not great because it needs body. Like traditionally, like you might like you might use eggs or some sort of protein. So what they do is they use the langoustine brains. So like we're literally there, like with langoustine heads, just like crushing them together, squeezing out the brains, then hanging them so that basically like all the water came out of the brains, and you're just left with like this light brain. And then basically you use that, whisk it up, and like fold this through like the yeah, bisque to thicken it. Yeah, like brain soup. But obviously, but I don't know if you've ever tried that. Like, probably not. But like if you try brains from langoustine, they're unbelievable. They're so good. They're like, hands down for me, they're probably like the most flavoursome part of it. Wow. And they're great. So like, so like half of them, they um, made to thickness. And then the other brains, they set to one side and actually fermented. So they had like an even sour flavour, but like, like legal. I just want to point that out. It's like <laughs> legal to do. And um, basically then what they did was like, they made like a pine caramel. So they used like pine trees and made like this pine caramel. And then finished it with like the brains. And I basically fold that through. So like, they had like a, I suppose like a brain caramel. And then they like cook this langoustine tail in a pan, baste it with like pine butter, 
take it out and then brush it with the brains and then like <laughs> scent it out on a pine branch. And I was just like, amazing. Crazy. Like, this is, it must yeah. just blown your yeah. mind. Yeah. And then, so I came back to the box and like, I tried it once. Like, obviously, I couldn't like work out how they'd done it exactly, but the idea of actually using the brain to season up a langoustine tail like, just heightens it because you're brushing it with something that tastes even yeah, more. Yeah, right. Like, so you're just enhancing it yeah, with, yeah, with yeah. itself. Yeah, so like, quite cool, yeah. What was it like then, like, you know, work being, I take it you hadn't spent loads of time in Norway before. No, I'd never uh, been. So what was it like? Was uh, it... First of all, like, absolutely freezing. If you are going to go to Norway to do a stash, just honestly, just, go, just go in summer, yeah. <laughs> I'll take like three hats and, I don't know, watch your ears because they will fall off. But it was amazing. Like I could live there. I'd love to live there like one day. Even just for like a year or something, I'd just like to live there. But maybe like Sam doesn't want to do it, so. Yeah. I couldn't, well, my thing is I always wanted to live out in Denmark, actually. Yeah, Denmark. Been, really. Yeah, I've been to Copenhagen a couple of times. and lo- I've not been to Oslo, but I've been to other mm. places in Norway. Yeah. Just, I just love their way of life, and they're so, so into food. Well. Yeah, and, and they love food. Like, everywhere you go is just like predominantly about food. There's yeah. like fish markets everywhere and... You know, like even just like look, like even like like old housewives are coming down and just like selling stuff. All like, they're always at the market. Like first thing, it's like completely like different to anywhere else I've been. But no, like I, I love Norway and I love Mimo as well. Like Mimo was great, and Esben in particular is just like such a character. Seems like a bit yeah, of a character. character. Yeah, there's like this one day, like um, it was like a Saturday lunch, and um, the stagiaires like started like an hour after, like the um, chef. The oh, okay, right, okay. So it was like a good. It was a good thing. Like they really looked after us. But we came in and um, one of the chef de parties, it was his day off, but he'd called in to get something and he was walking out and he just looked at me and went, good luck, motherfucker. I was, like, <laughs> I was like, what? He was like, he was like, mm, you've got a busy Saturday lunch and there's a table of one in. And I was like, what's that mean? He was like, Uh-oh. well, we think it's Michelin. Right. And I was like, oh my God. So like, we all went in and the kitchen was like really, really tense. And like literally like, everything was just like scrutinized and it was like VIP, like langoustine, every, every, well, basically like one of every dish was just like put to one side. So there's like, literally like for this VIP guy, cause he was on his own. We were cooking like two langoustines, like two pieces of cod, like everything was done twice. So that basically like Esben and Jordan and Hallie could just like, like, right, this is what we're going with. But it was like really tense. And it got to like, um, it got to like quarter to 12 and they always do like a pre-service briefing. So like you'll do one on lunch, one on dinner. And Esben was just like pumped up and he was just like, everybody just needs to calm down. It's like, we do this like every day. Like we cook every day. We do this every day. Like, it does not matter who that guy is. If he's the head of Michelin, it doesn't matter. Just do what you do. Almost instantly, everybody was like really relaxed and like everybody was just like ready for it. And um, it got to service and we were getting like slammed and it was like really, really hard service. And it was like, obviously like even though it like calmed everybody down, it was like people were still tense because they were worried about like this tale of one and stuff. Basically, like, they do this thing, so basically like they call hands. So like the waiters don't really carry food, it's the chefs. Right, yeah. So like, when they call hands, basically, like as a stagiaire, you just run to that pass as quick as you can and make sure that you're there because if you don't, you're going to know about it. And so we're doing that. And then all of a sudden, I was like going towards the pass and Esben just shouted my name. He was like, Sean, come here. Come here now. So I went over. I was like, oh, chef, everything okay? He was like, he's like, grabbed, like, punching my chest, like, banging on my chest. He was like, you know how to cook, motherfucker, don't you? And I was like, I was like uh, yes, chef. And he was like, right, you, you do this as a job. This is why you've come. You want to cook? You want to cook? He was like, you fucking cook with me now, yeah? And I was like, what? He was like, yeah, me and you, we do this, we do this. And we had a Michelin inspector, and I was like, oh, my God. And <laughs> so I, I was like, I was like, yeah, inspector. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, oh, and, like, my God. And Esben's like, you're going to cook with me. And next thing you know, like, Jordan on the past calls hands, and I go running over, like, quick as I can to get this food. And Esben just in there, like, Sean, motherfucker, get back here. I tell you, you cook with me now. 
So I ran back and he was like, are you still with me? And like, just cooked with those been for like two and a half hours. Amazing. Like, service. And I, was like, I mean, I wasn't like physically like cooking hot stuff. Like, it was missing, like, just like pass me that pan. So, right, right. I was just there watching him. He was like, so, so exact. Then service like finished and like, it was getting a bit more relaxed. He just came up, slapped me on the back. He goes, now clean this shit down, motherfucker. <laughs> just walked <laughs> off and that was it. And it was just like, oh my God. It was just like amazing. Like, it's like one of the best, most surreal experiences of my life. Just cooking with a free stash, yeah literally just working like in right next to me I was like That's so this is cool. amazing so one of the things I do to wrap up yeah. uh, each interview is I just ask you one by one you don't have to go back over the stories to yeah. tell me the names of your menu yeah. and I'm going to get you to choose your favourite cool. one yeah. cool so the first dish was um, a memory of autumn which was sort of like sort of coming home from school and my mum like cooking Christmas cakes and baking a lot and like working in the garden and things like this and so like I would say like I didn't have, like, a strict childhood where I was, like, oh, we had, like, loads of great food. I went to, like, loads of great restaurants. But, like, it was more to do with, like, my mum baking, my dad, like, cooking Sunday lunches and stuff and, like, that sort of family experience. So that was, like, my first sort of, like, dish. Um, second dish was salmon blini with uh, blue teeth, caviar and chervil, which was the dish that we did the sandpaper. Uh, my next dish was a uh, chocolate dome and blood orange sorbet, which was the dessert that we did at uh, Yorkbridge House. My next dish was the uh, smoked crappadine beetroot with cordial and horseradish curd, which is obviously what we do at the Black Swan. And then my final dish was the uh, langoustine tail from Midsund, which is the dish that we did at Mama. And your favourite? For me now, I'm going to say I'm going to be biased again and go for the crappadine beetroot because I think it just represents where I am in life now and what I'm cooking and stuff. Good. So what we do is we're going to make a menu of series one. So every chef has chosen their favourite dish. So you've got your menu today to keep and then the next couple of weeks I'll send through series one Mm -hmm. menu just to say thank you and thank you for being a part of it. So obviously we me and yourself kind of got to know each other over Twitter really. yeah, yeah, never, yeah. never met yeah. ahead of today and you've just been such a nice guy yeah, um, been good and you've just been brilliant so a little bit of good news for the podcast two days ago at the Black Swan I asked Amelia my now fiance to marry me yeah, Sean was one of the people that obviously knew about that yeah, what was yeah. going to happen um, and all of you guys made it special it's obviously sad but, that you weren't in yeah, but next time I come round and I definitely no, I'll make, come I'll make back. Sure I'll yeah, make, I'll make sure, sure that you're in. But thank you so much no, for your time. Been You've been a really good laugh no, as well. Thank you for your no, story. No, so you thank you. And uh, that's it from this episode of The Past with Sean Rest. Thank, thank you, you very much. The Past podcast is brought to you in association with Great British Chefs. Recipes, hints, tips and features on this year's Great British menu. Sign up for the mailing list at greatbritishchefs.com. I'm hoping to add some bonus content soon, so if you sign up to the mailing list, that'll be the best way for all your past podcast news.